This is the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. Hello, this is Daryl Macias coming to you for an outstanding, outstanding edition of Wilderness Medicine Live for the month of June 2017. We are going to do something so good and so fast and so strong. In our virtual studio are experts to discuss cutting-edge articles from the journal, biting at the bit to impart their wisdom. Yes, their wisdom to you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, so hang on and let's go. I'm going to hike up a 14er this week. In fact, it's Pikes Peak, just over 14,000 feet in elevation. But I don't want to get acute mountain sickness. So should I take ibuprofen or acetaminophen? What do you think, huh? Which one's fancy, huh? Which one should I take? Well, I have the man with me right here, right now, Dr. Buda Bosnia, the escape, who answers this question with his paper, prophylactic acetaminophen or ibuprofen results in equivalent acute mountain sickness incidence at high altitude, a prospective randomized trial. Buddha, please tell our listeners a little bit about you. Okay, this is Buddha Basnet. I am here in Kathmandu, Nepal at 1,300 meters. That's about like 4,000 feet, not very, very high. I do altitude medicine like a hobby, and I also do infectious diseases. So we see patients in both these areas and also do research in both these areas. So I'm very happy to be here talking to you all. And here, a reviewer of the paper is none other than Dr. Amy Biondich. Take it away, Amy. I'm a board-certified emergency medicine physician currently practicing in rural Wisconsin. I've got fellowship training in wilderness and expedition medicine. And currently, I am the medical director for four different international ultra-endurance races, two of which take place at altitude. Buddha, please give us a summary of this paper comparing acetaminophen, that is, paracetamol, versus ibuprofen for AMS. Thanks, Daryl. So basically, you know, going up to high altitude sometimes means that you might have to take diamox or acetazolamide because, you know, you, uh, you might be going too high, too fast for some reason. But diamox, you know, has some problems because it causes tingling of your fingers, carbonated drinks, flat. If you have sulfur allergy, it's not a very good drug. It's not available over the counter, et cetera, et cetera. So many years ago, we studied ibuprofen and found that it was effective in preventing acute mountain sickness. In fact, it was as good as cytosolamide or diamox. And so we said, well, you know, what if we compared this acetaminophen ibuprofen? Because we found ibuprofen worked. So we thought that if acetaminophen also worked, then perhaps some of the side effects of ibuprofen like gastritis uh, would be, uh, you know, we, we would not have to deal with. So what we did was, this was randomized double-blind, no, no placebo-controlled trial, and we hypothesized that ibuprofen would do a better job due to its anti-inflammation effect than paracetamol or uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol. We had 225 participants uh, you know, these were partially acclimatized people at about 14,000 feet. And so, so the trial started at 14,000 feet. So they're partially acclimatized and they had to go up to 
about 15,000 feet. 14,000 feet is equivalent to 4,300 meters, and 15,000 feet is equivalent to 4,600 meters of elevation. So this was the trial area from 14,000 to 15,000 feet. And amongst these 225 participants, when we randomized and gave them either acetaminophen or ibuprofen amongst these 225 participants, we found out that 22% of the people who were taking acetaminophen developed AMS, and 16% of the people who took ibuprofen developed AMS. So, and there was no statistical difference. In fact, in other words, acetaminophen and ibuprofen did an equally good job. The combined incidence of acute mountain sickness uh, in, in this group was 19%. So this was much lower than the historical incidence of acute mountain sickness uh, when people did not take any medicines or were on placebo, it's 33% for the same route from, from 14,000 going up roughly to 15,000 feet. So people who took ibuprofen or Tylenol, you know, combined incidence 19.1% versus those that took placebo or uh, you know the historical comparison. So we didn't have this in this study was 33%. And though, in other words, for this study, we found out that acetaminophen did just as a good job in preventing AMS as ibuprofen, as our previous study had shown. This also, you know, like uh, spoke to the pathophysiology of acute mountain sickness. And we can discuss it further, but brief, that was the study. Now, hold on. Let's just summarize this a little bit. This is incredible. So they took a group of non-Nepali participants, and they randomized them to either ibuprofen or acetaminophen. And guess what, folks? The incidence of AMS was only 19%, which is really good. So it sounds like you can pick your poison, huh? I was pretty excited to get a chance to review this article just in relation to my practice. As I mentioned, I have a couple ultra races that occur at high altitude, and it's always really difficult to try to advise you know, runners or patients on what they should be taking. We hate to use acetazolamide in a setting where people are stressing their kidneys day after day. We hate to use ibuprofen again, secondary to the risk of kidney injury. So for me, this was exciting to see if we have a medication that we are available to use, you know, in that setting of five, six-day ultra events at altitude. Looking at the study itself, I think it was a really well-done study. One small thing I noticed, and I was just wondering the author's opinion, is it seems as though in looking at the two groups that were randomized to acetaminophen versus ibuprofen, one of the few demographics that was different was that it seemed as though the acetaminophen group and the ibuprofen group were different in terms of where the participants' home altitude was at. Does Dr. Bosniak think that this would have affected the trial at all? I mean, I know that these participants were already partially acclimatized, but did the authors think that that would matter much in their results? Well, yes, I mean, if, uh, sure. So if you, you know, so if you look at table one, the demographic data of the participants, what was the home altitude? Was it less than 2,000 meters or was it more than 2,000 meters? And, you know, so, so, people, so, so there was really no difference, you know, and, and for people living above 2,000 meters, there were five people in the acetaminophen group and there were only 
zero. There was no one in the ibuprofen group. So there was no difference for this to be any significant. So the baseline was similar. It would make a difference if someone came from Aspen. So your point is well taken. I mean, people lived in Aspen versus San Diego, and we had these two different groups, then yes, that would make a difference. One of my other questions was in the discussion of the paper, one of the final results, kind of the aim of the study was showing that the combined group incidence of acute mountain sickness was 19.1%, which was notably lower than the 33% incidence reported. And it's my understanding that's reported from placebo groups and studies that were previous to this study. Do you happen to know in those historical studies, were any of those participants of that 33%, were any of them developing hate or haste? Because I noted no one in this study did. Was that different for other studies that were just placebo compared? No one in those studies, and, and most of those studies we were involved with, most of those studies that we referenced that had 33% that were in the placebo group, that 33% is an average incidence of people who are not on fitazolamide, dimox, or ibuprofen. So, so that was average, and that was 33%. And none of those people had developed the life-threatening forms of altitude sickness. So that was the most interesting part of the study, is that about 19% only developed AMS in the group that took acetaminophen or ibuprofen in this study in question. And there was a big difference between that 33%, uh, which was average of four studies that are referenced in the article. The million-dollar question today is, do you think that ibuprofen and acetaminophen are ultimately offering analgesic effects for the headache? Or do you think that this study kind of contributes to the knowledge of the pathophysiology and development of AMS? Uh, in the Lake Louise questionnaire, there are these subsets of headache gastrointestinal like problems like nausea, tiredness, sleeplessness. Hey, 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 hey. Buddha references this Lake Louise scoring system, which is well written in the literature. But did you forget the criteria? Well, it's simple, ladies and gentlemen. Just remember this mnemonic, old hag. <laughs> O-L-D-H-A-G. O stands for poor sleep or sleeplessness. Now, where is the O in sleepiness or sleeplessness? Well, guess what? I made up a synonym, and it's OSA, you know, obstructive sleep apnea. <laughs> well, why that, you may ask? Well, because people with OSA do not sleep well either. So just accept this O for poor sleep. L is for lassitude. D is for dizziness. H is for headache. A is for anorexia, and G is GI complaints, nausea or vomiting. That spells out old hag, and you heard it here, you heard it now on Wilderness Medicine Live. So we did that subgroup analysis for people in either taking acetaminophen or ibuprofen. They showed no difference. So it wasn't like you got rid of the headache, like, you know, the one ibuprofen or that it was all centered on the headache. There was no difference, and so group analysis clearly showed that there was something else going on, and it was just not the not just taking away the pain. And a previous study has also shown this when, when they looked at ibuprofen and placebo. You know, I still think that acetazolamide or Dimox rules the roost. It's the drug of choice for the prevention of acute mountain sickness. Acetazolamide is. 
drugs like ibuprofen and paracetamol. I think with more studies, we can come to a, a better picture and get a better idea if uh, you know they can, in certain circumstances, many circumstances, replace Diamox. So the demographics as far as home altitude didn't differ between the ibuprofen versus paracetamol group. Bueno, it seems that either of these meds are better than placebo. 19% AMS versus 33% on an average AMS in placebo groups in previous studies, which is pretty significant. Now these drugs don't simply treat pain. The acetazolamide, however, is still the king. But these other drugs could be a viable alternative for AMS prophylaxis, especially for short-term exposure to moderately high altitudes or for bagging that 14,000-foot peak in a day. This was an excellent study. On my next race coming up, I will try using acetaminophen with my runners to see if that assists in their, some of their acute mountain sickness symptoms. Now, I wonder what the average rate of ascent for the participants happened to be. These treks are like what I think you would say are easy going. So this was, you know, they took their time going up. So I wonder what the average rate of ascent was. Was it 300 meters a day, 500 meters a day? What do you think? So what I'll tell you is that these people from Feriche or Dingboche, which is about 4,300 meters, from Feriche, they were going up to 5,000 meters. So so this particular study, or all our studies actually, uh, are done between Feriche, Dingboche, which is about the same altitude, going up to Lobuje in the Everest Trek, which is 5,000 meters. So there's a there's a rise of about 700 meters that most people do in one day. That's where, you know, we, we do our studies. Now, you would say, if you're familiar with that Everest trek, you fly to Lukla, why don't you do it at a lower altitude, like 3,000, about 3,000 meters? And the reason we don't do it from there is because we get a lot of dropouts and the study becomes useless. In general, it's 700 meters. This is a limitation of the study because, indeed, these participants are partially acclimatized. Now, do trekking companies have a standard rate of ascent in Nepal, or does it vary widely among trekking companies? In the Himalayas, especially in the Everest Trek, Annapurna Trek, I think Nepal has done an excellent job where people, for instance, are told you have to stay at Namche Bazaar for two nights, at that Feriche region for two nights. You know, this has all been planned out versus Kilimanjaro, for example, where there are much more fatalities going up to almost the same altitude like Kalapatar in the Everest region, top of Kilimanjaro in Africa. And that's because in Kilimanjaro, they go up too high, too fast. And in the, in the Himalayas, you know, the people follow this rate of ascent in general in Nepal. Do you feel that participant experience or conditioning influenced the results? Maybe there's many newbies who believe that just getting in shape in and of itself is sufficient to be able to reach those high altitudes. So that, that's, yeah, that's, that's very kind of you to ask this question, and you're absolutely right. People think that susceptibility to acute mountain sickness and its life-threatening forms of hip and haze are dependent on how fit you are, and the answer is that's not true at all. In fact, those people who run marathons and, you know, do strenuous things, exercises at, uh, you know, sea level are much more likely to get, you know, suffer from altitude sickness. So fitness really doesn't protect you. In fact, you might push yourself too hard because you feel very fit. You haven't ha had a very good workout. 
but this is in hypoxic conditions. And, and so people are well advised to follow this you know, rule about going up slowly, taking your time. And really, that's the key to prevention of acute mountain sickness and the life-threatening forms, the, the other complications. So what are some of the proposed mechanisms by which ibuprofen or acetaminophen seem to exert to reduce AMS? So this is something that, that is very, very interesting and intriguing. So what is the mechanism of action, proposed mechanism of action, the hypothesis of the mechanism of action of ibuprofen? You know, so it takes the pain away. But there is this, you know, arachidonic acid pathway, you know, the prostaglandin pathway, the anti-inflammation pathway that, that it helps so that there is less inflammation. And corticosteroids, which also prevent and treat acute mountain sickness, apparently works along this pathway of the arachidonic acid and, and causing anti-inflammation. So inflammation itself may be an important part of the pathophysiology of acute mountain sickness that ibuprofen helps to negate, just like the steroids. You know, the blood-brain barrier, uh, there's less inflammation there with, with ibuprofen. That might be a pathophysiological mechanism. Now, what about acetaminophen? You know, what about Tylenol? does not have a big effect on, on anti-inflammation. I think that the causation of acute mountain sickness is multifactorial. And this study perhaps showed this. How is acetaminophen working? Well, it may be working, certainly not by decreasing inflammation because it doesn't have much of a role along those lines, but maybe inhibiting the pain fibers from the meninges. The pain fibers may be interfered with from the meninges is one proposed mechanism of action different from ibuprofen. And so AMS is probably caused by multifactorial reasons. Wow. So it seems acetaminophen might exert its effect by mitigating meningeal irritation, but could acetaminophen also mask the inflammatory response from AMS? Yeah. You know, I mean, you could say the same about ibuprofen uh, and, you know, that, that does it mask. I mean, people still think that uh, many people think acetazolamide masks the symptoms, just like corticosteroids. You know, that's the accepted version that corticosteroids mask the symptoms of altitude sickness or acute mountain sickness versus Diamox treats and prevents. This question will keep on uh, being raised, and I think that we can do more studies. But, you know, we've done a head-to-head -head study with uh, in 2010 and published in the Wilderness Environmental Medicine, where we looked at ibuprofen and acetazolamide head-to-head -head, uh, in the prevention of acute mountain sickness, and there was no difference, you know, and this was a proper sample size. So it's interesting. I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, just the masking part. Lastly, Buddha, would you please discuss the upcoming ISMM 2018 meeting? 2018. November 21, 22, 23, 24, we will have the International Society of Mountain Medicine meeting here in Kathmandu, Nepal. Dr. Harman Brugger, who lives in this beautiful place in Bolzano, Italy, and is the president of the ISMM, will be taking an active part in this. And, but the meeting is going to happen here in Kathmandu, Nepal, and the venue is going to be the Yak and Yeti Hotel. And I think November is a beautiful time to be here. And we would like to welcome you all to Shangri-La.
Well, thank you all for this enlightening discussion. Thank you so much. And thanks, Alicia and Daryl and Amy. Thank you and good night. Dr. Brad Bennett. I'm Dr. Brad Bennett. I'm a research physiologist. Uh, I started my training in Native of California, worked with the Navy in one of their biomedical laboratories in San Diego, and I had an opportunity to be more or less mentored by a senior department head to come into the Navy, receive full scholarship to give my doctorate in applied physiology and work physiology. And I did 15 years of operational research on environmental extremes. I trained as a deep sea diving medical officer, did submarine patrols and research, and progressed to other laboratories doing environmental extremes in heat and cold with Navy SEALs, Marine Corps. That led up to the opportunity to be selected for one position that occurred in the Department of Military and Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Services University and had an extremely opportunity to step out of environmental physiology and into pre-hospital emergency care at many different levels. Trained as a paramedic and worked in tactical medicine started doing research and publications, was promoted to the vice chair under Dr. Craig Llewellyn, and ultimately took over as the chair of the department. From there, I was able to be selected to be the first commanding officer out at the Field Medical Service School at Camp Pendleton, training all of the combat corpsmen that served side-by-side with Marines worldwide. I also was responsible for the Navy SEALs and the Marine Recon corpsmen students and instructors at the Joint Special Operations Medical Training at Fort Bragg. I joined the Wilderness Medicine Society in the early 90s, ultimately getting involved in many activities and presenting in workshops. I just stepped down as president of the Wilderness Medicine Society about a year ago and continuing to serve on the executive committee as the past president. But we're going to want to know, Brad, what does operational or tactical or battlefield medicine have to do with wilderness medicine? This is a special edition journal which contains various papers dedicated to operational medicine and its link to wilderness medicine. Now we're only going to have time to summarize a few papers so I encourage you all listeners to read these articles on your own because our short time together cannot do justice to this exciting topic. But before we begin, the term TCCC, or Tactical Combat Casualty Care, is used often in these papers. Could you explain TCCC? Uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care is an outgrowth over many decades of operational, or what we would say more specifically, battlefield trauma care, typically administered by the various services uh, as a basic medic. The traditional approaches of battlefield care have been around a long time, but really it's growth out of the Special Operations Committee, particularly the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers, realizing getting trained in pre-hospital trauma or taking the physician course, advanced trauma life support, was just a baseline and not really specific to how people are injured and die on the battlefield, primarily 
primarily fragmentation, bombs and weapons, and then gunshot wounds, high velocity and low velocity. That need prompt then the biomedical research director supporting Navy SEALs was now Captain retired Frank Butler, uh, stood up the first guidelines published in the journal called Military Medicine in 1996 on the first evidence-based guidelines for tactical combat casualty care. Interestingly, TCCC seems to be very useful even in the wilderness, given that both deal with patient care under extreme environmental conditions, live gunfire, cliff faces with rock falls, storms, or whatever the condition, focusing on the most immediate patient needs. So in the case of operational medicine, and even sometimes in wilderness medicine, good old-fashioned street medicine with well-developed hospitals, and going by the good old ABCs, doesn't always suffice. And so there's a useful algorithm in TCCC that's called the MARCH algorithm. M standing for massive hemorrhage, A airway, R respiration, C for circulation, and H for hypothermia. And it's nice in that it gives us the priority of patient care according to what has been found in previous literature. Because of the evidence-based data that really started in Vietnam by then vascular trauma surgeon Ron Bellamy, who came to USIS as a professor of surgery and a professor of military emergency medicine. It was his research on nearly five to 6,000 battlefield casualties that identified how people die and the high percentage of penetrating trauma dying from sanguination, and then a much, much smaller percentage, but preventable though, uh, airway obstruction from trauma to the face and neck and then also tension pneumothoraces at, at the lowest percentage. But all three of those, based on his profile of how people die, are actually preventable. That has also been replicated by trauma surgeon, now retired Colonel Brian Eastridge's work in 2012 that looked at a similar high population and replicated Ron Bellamy's data that hemorrhage by far is the leading cause of death and then a much smaller percentage of airway obstruction and tension pneumo. Even in a different mechanism of how people die between Vietnam and the previous Gulf War conflicts that are still ongoing today. Yeah, naturally, this helpful March algorithm is not generalizable to all wilderness situations since in the case of, for instance, avalanche burial, clearly the airway comes first. But there are some great commonalities in operational and backcountry medicine. The commonalities are both settings, backcountry and battlefront, are austere. It's 24-7, it's dark, it could be threatening from environmental threat. You have delayed medical care potentially to casualties and certainly delayed evacuation based on where you're located. Can we get a SAR team in there? Can we get a rotary wing to spot where they are, to get a grid coordinate, to get someone dropped down on a hoist? Same with, same with the battlefield. We may not be able to get a medical evacuation team to fly in because it's an ongoing tactical situation. It's nighttime, there's threats to anybody who flies, both in peace or in wartime. And so there are just tremendous relationships between the two. The articles to be covered. Leading control using hemostatic resonance. Lessons learned. Treatment of thoracic trauma. Again, to do proper justice to these papers, we would need a few hours to talk about them all, and so we'll only briefly discuss some papers. 
Brad, you've had research interest in hemostatic bandages, so let's go to your paper entitled Bleeding Control Using Hemostatic Dressings. Lessons learned. Teach us and teach us big. We may choose under using the March algorithm to stop the bleed the quickest. It could be simply as doing direct pressure, getting a tourniquet on, maybe two side by side if necessary, or if we're in a non-compressible area, such as a junctional region, the inguinal region, what we call non-tourniquable or not amenable to a tourniquet, we may choose one of now three approved TCCC hemostatic dressings, and that being quick clot combat gauze, which is really one of our second generation that was approved in April 2008. It's had the most use on the battlefield uh, internationally as well, and has transitioned very nicely many years ago to tactical SWAT teams in the U.S., now patrol officers because of the active shooter problem we have in our communities and schools and workplace. And EMS now is slowly making that transition. The other two that got approved more recently based on the definitive paper that I published in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, we've added now Celox gauze, a chitosin-based gauze hemostatic dressing, and like Celox gauze, the Hemcon dressing called Kytogaz Pro is also a chitosin-based dressing. All have shown nicely in a, in a definitive paper to work equivalently, but I might add in the TCCC guidelines, which can be viewed at www.cotccc.com, you'll see all of our battlefield guidelines. A preference is given to combat gauze because of the years of use, but equally and equally effective but stated as an alternative would be the Celex gauze and the Kyta gauze. In one of our papers by Dr. Drew and, and Dr. Littlejohn, uh, the part two has an overview of tourniquets and hemostatic dressings. We actually make a recommendation for wilderness aid kits to consider what to carry for an individual or what you should potentially consider for an expeditionary medical kit where you have a greater capacity to take more gear due to the fact you have more people to manage. I would recommend you take combat gauze and one of the other chitosin because the mechanism of action for the clotting cascade are different. Quick clot is a kaolin clay-based mechanism that has to be applied close to the bleeding source that starts the clotting cascade, where the other two, chitosin-based, has been in wound management probably 30 to 40 years, but not at the level that we've been researching this since 2003 with the lethal wound model that we use in the junctional of the inguinal area to test these products out uh, at a high severe uh, rate of bleeding in the femoral artery. So would the XDAT injectable sponge be really practical to carry and is it available commercially? Yes it is. Uh, that was developed really under the auspices of the special operations in the Army and researched and developed within the Army system, then went into production by a company called RevMedic. They now sell three style of syringes filled with these small little sponges that expand with 
contacts blood, and it has chitosan coating on it. So these are really designed for wound tracks, specific needs on the battlefield. Would there be application occasionally and rare in the wilderness if someone falls on a stick from a fall from height, which we know is the leading mechanism for great trauma and TBI, traumatic brain injury? So it would be rare. Space and weight is always a challenge, whether you're on the battlefield or what you're going to consider carrying in the backcountry. And this would probably not make it into an individual first aid kit, but certainly should be considered for an expeditionary first aid kit for some deep penetration that might occur from what? An ice axe. Now you mentioned head injury. So is it recommended to inject these Xstat sponges into an open head wound? No, it is not. Uh, there's very strict guidelines for the type of wound track, non-compressible. The animal model where this was tested was a high-pressure vascular area, subclavian artery, and it shows very effective. So it's a tight, closed space versus an open wound, which would be more amenable to one of the hemostatic gauzes. But because it's a tight track, not only do you get the hemostatic benefit of the chitosan on these little cellulose tablets that expand it are sponges, but you get the hydrostatic back pressure of injecting these little sponges in a closed space, then with direct manual pressure and or following up with a pressure dressing, depending on where your, the anatomical location is. So you're getting a combined effect. Thoracic trauma in the backcountry. Let's talk about it. And first, let's address needle decompression. When, where, and how? There have been two definitive papers most recently at the Institute of Surgical Research and the other research group that does very active TCCC-related research as Naval Medical Center Portsmouth, and at that time headed up by Dr. Lanny Littlejohn. So two papers now have come out on chest trauma. We'll talk about chest seals. But in this paper that Dr. Littlejohn wrote for the special edition, he also talks about needle decompression and the challenges associated with that. So you can imagine with penetrating trauma on the battlefield, we have lots of data from using a needle decompression. And of course, our EMS have been using them for years. The 14-gauge needle placed in the second intercostal space, lateral to the midline of the nipple. The problem that is associated with doing that procedure by, in this case, in the U.S. paramedic, unlike on the battlefield, your basic medic is trained to do a needle decompression. We have lots of data in Canada and U.S. that show that that needle might get more medial and towards the mediastinum. It may even puncture the pericardium and create a bleed or puncture the heart muscle itself or one of the great vessels. So this is one of the complications body, location, and anatomy, and understanding where these landmarks are to apply the needle is very important. We now more recently have adopted the mid-axillary region, the fifth intercostal space, the mid-axillary region, the fifth intercostal space, the mid-axillary region, the fifth intercostal space, lots of definitive research, post-motor analysis, looking at the chest wall, chest wall thickness, have all been done because a lot of the original 14-gauge applied either to mid-axillary or mid-clavicle region have not penetrated the pleural space. And that's just one of the many complications of using a needle decompression to try to treat the pressure 
the tension that's building up with each breath that ultimately will lead to a cardiovascular collapse with pressure leading across the mediastinum, putting pressure on the myocardium, preventing cardiac output, and blood flow distally and superiorly coming out of the heart when it gets to be very, very definitive and high pressure. So it's life-saving. It can be done pre-hospital in any setting with the right individual, with the right training and the right tool. And how, most importantly, do you follow up with that insertion to make sure that opening in the pearl space is continuing to stay open because they ultimately need definitive surgical care to close up that deficit in the pleural space. Whoa! Needle decompression done classically can be harmful, puncturing the heart or great vessels. It seems then that the fifth intercoastal space at the mid-axillary line penetrates better and decreases complications. Hey, I love those Canadians, but here's my take on confirming placement. Well, you could take the needle or the catheter where the needle was, and you could aspirate it to ensure air is coming out. And I like to use a 10cc syringe with sterile saline to look for bubbling. You could also look for blood and aspirate blood if there's a hemothorax or hemoneumothorax. And ultrasound is also very helpful to detect this. Unless we wanted to use the old methods of percussion and auscultation, which is difficult in a loud, hostile environment. Right. So there are many problems with leaving the needle in. Some agencies on the EMS side state to take the needle out so the catheter, the flexible catheter, could clog, it can kink, and it may not be definitively in the pleural space, making the difference relieving the tension. So these are ongoing challenges. Fortunately, industry and a couple of our trauma surgeons that have been on the TCCC committee have been doing active research comparing different devices and coming up up with a better tool designed specifically for this procedure that might get around all of those complications that I've mentioned. I'm Dr. Tamal Roy, a first-year UNM emergency medicine resident. In emergency medicine, we've been taught that an open pneumothorax can be closed by some sort of a flutter valve taped or closed on three sides with the fourth side being open for air egress. The TCCC guidelines tell us that you can simply slap on a chest seal that is completely closed on all sides without that flutter mechanism. Then you insert a needle into a chest, since you might get a tension pneumo from sealing off the chest wound. This makes sense if you have to take care of a patient and get out of danger quickly. And I've heard that there are chest seals where you do not have to stick a needle into the chest afterwards. I would like to know more about these special chest seals. Let's discuss the ideal properties of a chest seal then. Yes, this became quite evident more recently when we did a medical evaluation in Afghanistan recently and then not related to me, a Navy captain, Dr. Bennett, trauma surgeon, said, Frank, Frank Butler, why are you closing up an open chest wound? And this will ultimately lead to a tension. So this is not a new problem. EMS has dealt with this for years in the U.S. and worldwide, always trying to close up that deficit with some form of an occlusive seal. In the backcountry, that could be a plastic, it could be a Ziploc bag, it could be a credit card. 
But having a commercially available seal that has been tested as they are today, the top recommended seals that are in this paper by Dr. Littlejohn have been tested in all environmental extremes, heat and cold, as well as duration of adhesiveness. So you have a very good seal. And now, based on what I mentioned before, Naval Medical Center of Portsmouth Research and the Institute of Surgical Research have also come out to show that once you put on one of these newly commercial available seals that are recommended with a valve, and not all valves are made the same, but across these ones that they selected, as long as the valve is remaining open, then attention will not build and cause all the complications leading to death if it, attention pneumothoraces is not recognized. So this is the first and the, and the only two definitive research it's ever proving this. So all EMS, all backfield kit would be beneficial to consider one of these recommended modern chest seals with a vent built in. A proper chest seal should also be adherent despite hair, sweat, blood, or whatever. Make sure the valve opens. And just keep in mind, we don't have any vested interest or conflicts of interest, but in the article, the SAM, the hyphen, and the sentinel chest seals all adhered well and vented both blood and air without that feared complication of clotted blood occluding the vent. The simple thoracostomy seems to refer to a finger thoracostomy, no? So we're talking about emergent situation. All your procedures that you may have done may have not worked. You may have started in the mid-clavicular, second intercostal space with a needle, and you saw no benefit to the patient. Uh, you may have gone mid-axillary with the needle. Maybe, as you mentioned, Daryl, a hemonumo is building. They're lying flat. We're not evacuating blood. And so that 14-gauge may have not shown another benefit. So now we're kind of circling the drain. Things are getting worse. We're thinking about a cardiac arrest here, cardiopulmonary collapse. So Dr. Littlejohn made that statement that last-ditch effort is to create a definitive opening as you would for a tube. And yes, sticking a finger in there, helping evacuate both air and blood, not necessarily inserting a tube. You may not even have a tube, but this is analogous, Daryl, to sticking two bilateral 14-gauge needles in both right and left mid-clavicular space when you feel that it's impending death because you cannot find the cause of cardiovascular collapse. And in some cases, rare, someone will survive with that approach. This is the same thinking that Dr. Littlejohn is trying to do. Certainly, if you had a ability to improvise or a commercial tube thoracostomy kit, that would be the way to go. But in his statement here, he's saying last-ditch effort, make an opening, get a finger in, create some space, evacuate air and blood. I would want to finish with a comment, though. That statement that he just made that we're talking about is not in the TCCC guidelines. That's he speaking as an emergency physician, an operational physician, who is one of the highly deployable physicians with our elite special forces. Putting a chest tube in the backcountry, uh, we've heard antidotes of Foley's, for instance, inserted with coat hangers and whatever else. But doing a finger thoracostomy to relieve a life-threatening pneumothorax and covering it up with a chest seal with a vent might make more sense. 
Right. He does follow up that statement. Once you've made the opening, you may have seen some benefit. You should follow up with the recommended vented seal. Yes. Thank you very much, everybody. And that concludes our two articles. Please read these 19 articles over. And thanks, Brad, for taking time out to review these concepts and your efforts to publish these articles. And kudos to our new editor-in-chief, Neil Pollock, our managing editor, Alicia, Drs. Butler and Wedmore, in editing these 19 articles in our June 2017 journal. And thank you, Brad, again. And I know you'll be around the WMS, so I'm sure that if anybody has any questions, they can definitely contact you. Thank you, Daryl. To end it off, just a few quick announcements. There's the 34th Annual Summer Meeting of the Wilderness Medical Society in Breckenridge, Colorado, July 28th to August 2 of this year. It promises to be a lot of fun in a beautiful setting. And a quick announcement from my friend, Luigi Festi. He's the director of the Second International Master Course in Mountain Emergency Medicine. Now, this is a mountain emergency medicine course that is international, and it takes place in several venues. Of course, we have a collaboration here at the University of New Mexico, but it also takes place in Zermatt with Air Zermatt, Chamonix, Grenoble, and many, many other places. And Luigi, tell us how many hours we can expect. The master in emergency. The master in emergency, you know, but is the only one master in, uh, in the world, only one academic, long academic course with a diploma. And the total of hours of lesson of uh, study and uh, of uh, preparation of thesis, 1,500. And 700 hours of lesson and training on the field. Boy, that's great. Who is involved, Luigi? Obviously, the collaboration uh, with uh, Erzermatt is very, very strong. And, uh, and with you, with your course, obviously. And one of the major characteristics is uh, the collaboration, the wide collaboration, the United States and uh, in, uh, in Europe, in the Alps. 26 collaboration in the Alps and in the United States. And I have 150 teachers from all over the world. The half of these teachers are foreign teachers, half are Italian, obviously, and the other foreign foreign teachers. Not only medical doctors, but uh, famous alpinists, uh, helicopters, pilots, mountain guides. And as I'm just looking at some of the faculty here, I'm just amazed. We have... Reinhold Messner, Buda Bosnia, Oliver Risten, Giacomo Strapazon, Ken Zafran, Oswald Erls, Emmanuel Koshi, Simon Moro, big climber, those of us here at the University of New Mexico. If you want more information, please don't hesitate to contact Dr. Luigi Festi. And to find the information, you can simply Google Second International Master Course in Mountain Emergency Medicine, and you'll see the program. Hope to see you there, if not here. Signing off, take care, have a great summer. And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Severe. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.